Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lydia Finette, and this is Claim Your Confidence, coming to you from Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Plaza. I am so excited to be here today. If you are a woman who is in the working world, has ever been in the working world, or maybe this is just a story that you would like to hear, I want to talk to you about pregnancy at work, but I want to talk to you about a new way to think about it. And I have an incredible woman, Stephanie Kramer, who is seated across from me, who is going to do just that today after a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence, everyone. I'm so excited to talk to my guest who is seated across from me today. Stephanie Kramer is the author of a new book, Carrie Strong, Empowered Approach to Navigating Pregnancy and Work, and the Chief Human Resources Officer at L'Oreal. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Lydia. I have to say, I absolutely love your book. And I told you that when you walked in here. As someone who did three maternity leaves while working full-time, I really believe in such an incredible way that there is so much to be said on this topic. So we are going to dive in. But I want to know, because I know so many books are written from the author's perspective and what they have come through over the course of their life. I want to know about you. Where did you grow up? Where did Stephanie Kramer come from? So I was actually born in Charleston, West Virginia, and then my family moved outside of Pittsburgh. So I can claim being a Steelers, Pirates, Penguins fan in the early 90s. (laughs) And then um, most recently, I've been in the New York City area for over 20 years. And so you grew up in West Virginia. What were you like when you were little? (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because I was the first girl in three generations on one side of my family. Oh, wow. And on the other side, my mom's family also had four children. My grandfather went out into the street and was tying pink bows on the trees to welcome my arrival. So that's how (laughs) I started. And that's still who I am today. Really the little princess in many ways. Exactly. Mixed with a pretty strong tomboy in there too. And did you have brothers then? I have a brother and a sister. A brother and a sister. Yes. And what was that like growing up? What did you guys do as siblings? Were you competitive? Were you all good friends? What has that shown itself to be over the course of your life? So what's amazing about my siblings and also about my mom is that we love being around people. Mm -hmm. So now my sister is actually a teacher. My brother is in the U.S. Army. He's actually currently deployed. And I just love my job and being around so many people. So we were the ones that were in the neighborhood, always in the cul-de-sac. You know, I remember one time with my little brother um, trying to make a race car out of our uh, wagon and Uh we lived at the bottom of a very steep hill. So that wasn't probably the best decision, but we were always (laughs) finding something to be creative and be outside and get everybody involved in the neighborhood. Kids always have such great ideas. I remember something similar when my older brother got his license, his driver's permit, about tying a skateboard to the back of a car. That also seemed like a really good idea at the time. I remember one time my brother and I went to see a scary movie, but it was like the first time where we were both, for some reason, allowed, and I was driving, but we were so scared. It was also the first time that I, I... 
dinged my car because I backed up into where you return the shopping carts because I thought I heard a noise oh. from, <laughs> from the scary movie. Yeah, that was that was a special memory. So you grew up in West Virginia. What is it like to grow up in West Virginia? Well, I actually grew up in Pittsburgh. So I grew up outside in Western Pennsylvania and I was very close to both the sets of my grandparents. I went to a huge high school. So, you know, big football team, 900 kids in my graduating class. But I am exactly the same person as I was in high school. And anyone listening that knows me from then, I have a picture of me uh, with a walkie-talkie in a Hawaiian skirt outfit directing the parade. But then I had to switch and I wanted to be with my cross country team. So it's kind of like all these different pieces and parts of my life that I've always loved to take kind of the portfolio approach. Yes, uh, do it all. Exactly, do a multi-hyphenate. it all. multi-hyphenate. Exactly, multi-hyphenate. It was a great place to grow up. So you were a confident child then. You weren't a shrinking wallflower. You know, it's funny because I look at pictures and I kind of question how I was so confident. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I think we, I all, understand went, that, we really. all went through those phases. And in the book, I even talk about how I was a, a middle school cheerleader where the letters were on my stomach. They weren't necessarily in the right place. And my mom had to re-sew my jumper up onto my shoulders. But I did have a spark of confidence in being who I was. And I feel like that was reinforced by my family, by those around me, but also just, you know, this multi-hyphenate piece that it's funny to only see it now in hindsight that is truly who I am. And I think I got energy from all of those different places. I love that. So you left high school and then went to college. Yes. And where did you go to college? I went to Wake Forest. To Wake Forest. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes. I love a in Southern South. college. That's I know. right. It was a Swanee grad, so I know Wake Forest I love well. It. So what was Wake Forest like when you so, were moving there from, at this point, my family had moved during that time to New York. So my dad had gotten a new job. And so actually when I was in high school, we put a glass on the map and my mom said, this is six hours. You can go anywhere you want in this six hour radius. Because you can so, drive it. So I looked at what would be the most furthest south. And so I was like, okay, great. It's Duke, <laughs> it's Wake Forest, it's Emory. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I can go to those schools. And then of course we moved three hours further away. So then I was living, you know, nine to 10 hours away, regardless of the glass that had been put on the map. But what was incredible at Wake is that, you know, it had, it actually had a lot of Northern students as well. You had a lot of people from Texas. And then you also had this contingent where it was, you know, UNC and Duke, and it was very big into basketball and we would roll the quad and it was a cool place to be there. A sort of very American sounding yes, university exactly. experience. I also love it tells a lot about you that when they put the glass down, you weren't sort of like, what's an hour away? You were like, right. what is six hours <laughs> exactly. and one minute away? Exactly. Really push the boundaries and test the boundaries, which I think really is kind of what you do in every facet of your job. So yes. You left Wake Forest and came to New York immediately? So I was a chemistry major undergrad in college. Interesting. Why was it, why so, a chemistry major? So my the, my grandfather, the same one that had tied the bows, he was a chemical engineer. And he would come home from work and he worked in boiler rooms, mm -hmm. so in factories in Pittsburgh. And he would bring home corroded pipes and throw them on the table and ask me what happened. So I had this like really interesting, insatiable curiosity for the sciences. And I also wanted to be a doctor. And it's funny because I had, in the book, I actually interviewed 150 college age men and 150 college age women or non-gender conforming individuals. And I asked them if they had thought about their major when deciding someday if they wanted to be a parent or if, uh, opposite way around, if they wanted to be a parent when thinking about their major. And I actually remember deciding to do chemistry because I wanted to be a dermatologist because a dermatologist would have regular hours in my mind that would allow me to have a family. So 
I mean, that was all very much there, but it's also very telling that I have the picture of me when I was the president of the American Chemical Society at Wake Forest was in a sorority jersey. Oh my so, gosh, there were so many layers it's pretty to much, Stephanie. It's pretty much the same person. <laughs> the, the sorority jersey, publicity director, also, you know, Chemical Society uh, president. It's amazing. What an incredible day you must have had in college going from these different yeah. things. and Always running. Different also, groups. Physically. <laughs> physically running. I know we've talked about a joint love yes. of running, yes. moving quickly through life, even yes. the way that you speak. I should tell everyone, I met Stephanie through a friend of ours. We were having breakfast. I hadn't seen her since the end of the pandemic. And this is a friend named Caroline Homlish, who's an incredible woman, an incredible businesswoman. And she just had her first child and we were talking about it. And she said to me halfway through lunch, it was almost like this eureka moment. She said, oh, I know someone who has to go on your podcast and you absolutely have to meet her this week. And I was sort of like, who is this person? <laughs> and she said, her name's Stephanie. She's writing this incredible book, but also she's a runner and she moves really fast just like you do. So we sat down for breakfast for the first time and I think about two and a half hours later, we were both like, okay, we're moving into lunch That's now. So, so we have to actually separate and I want to have you on the podcast and have questions to ask. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that we didn't cover quite everything. <laughs> so you take your chemistry major, you take your sorority jersey, you move to New York City. Yes. What happens next? So I was working for a chemical company. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the first job that they placed me in was in one one of our manufacturing sites in Mount Olive, New Jersey. And it was actually amazing. And I got to walk the floor and it was, you know, working with the sales team there and one of the first and best bosses I've ever had. And they were teaching me, you know, how to call the customers and talk about these ingredients. And then I got a call from New York that was, they needed someone to do a maternity cover. So it's very full circle to this moment right now for me. This all all came around. Yeah, exactly. So I came to New York to do a maternity cover for this fragrance house. So All of the perfumes, except for a few of them, Chanel, Hermes, are made by these houses that are briefed by these amazing creators and perfumers. So I worked at this company and got to work on projects like Britney Spears Curious. So I'm taking everybody back a few years. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) And I was in a rotational program. And so every couple months, you know, you could be sent somewhere else to do a different type of a job. And I was their American pilot. So I was in New York. I was doing kind of the marketing side. And then I went to the UK and I was working on strategy for EMEA, kind of between the south of the UK and France, going back and forth on the channel. And then I actually moved to China. So pre-Olympics China. And what was that like? Let's dive into that for a second. Well, first of all, I got on the plane after I thought I was going to India. So I was in the UK and I remember the conversation very vividly because I thought I had made a profound mistake and it was, okay, you're going to go back to New York. You need to get a visa to go to Mumbai. Okay, awesome. This is fantastic. I'm going to go continue my adventure as a 20-something. And I come back and I sit down with the head of HR, also full circle moment. And remember, she said, are you so excited to be living in Shanghai for a year? And I said, no, I thought it was Mumbai. She was like, oh, right. Actually, we need someone to go and work on a project in China. So two days later, I got my visa. I got on a plane on my way there. And also, by the way, this is before we had amazing podcasts and tools that I could have listened on that very long flight. I had the guidebook and I remember trying to memorize how to say, please give me your passport in Chinese. Oh, my goodness. But I landed and it worked out. Yeah. And I still ran down the street, even though it wasn't uh, as common of occurrence. Travel is such an incredible thing. I talk about that and claim your confidence about the amazing thing about how travel pushes you and makes you more confident because you realize there are so many things that you did not ever think you could do, but put into that situation. You find all these skills and tools that you'll come back to over the course of your life just by pushing yourself out of that 
comfortable box. And a profound empathy for people who, you know, are coming to New York or coming into a new job yeah. from a different culture, a different experience or far away yes. because that experience is, it's no joke, yeah. but it was so incredibly rewarding. And then I came back to New York and then eventually I switched jobs. I went from the fragrance house into a fragrance brand and I worked on Ralph Lauren Fragrances, which is one of the brands in the L'Oreal portfolio. And, and there we go. And there we go. But there's so much more. Yes. <laughs> So you left China to come back to New York because of your job? Yes. And it, around this time, was this when you met your husband? So when I came back as I think a 24-year-old or so at the time, I had just lived abroad. I had had all these amazing experiences. The city was a very vibrant place. I was also in that age where you just you know go and do everything. And I met my husband in a bar downstairs, so the old school way. Yeah. One of his friends came up to me and said he had seen us talking, which in fact, the story of us meeting is pretty amazing. The two of us were sitting next to each other and there was somebody kind of like annoying me a little bit. And he was like, hey, leave her alone. And I was like, oh, you saved me. I should buy you a beer. And he was like, I just I just got one. I'm good. <laughs> and he walked away, which is also very telling because he's not very easily impressed by me. Still, later, his friend came over and he started asking me all these questions. And at the end of it, he was like, um, hey, Cooper, which is my husband's name. He's like, this is the girl you're going to marry. And so then we decided that it was funny to tell everybody we we're getting married and it snowballed from there too. <laughs> and so your husband is a bit of an extreme athlete or was at the time. Yes. And that's a really telling part of your story yes. and of your book yes. because you started off by giving this very vulnerable story. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to share it with our listeners. Sure. So uh, Cooper and I, we, we, we joke that we're activity partners. We love to run and play tennis and do things together. And one thing that I'm always most impressed by him is his drive and particularly with exercise. So the year after we got married, he decided to train for the New York City Ironman. And in fact, it's the only year that it was actually ever run in New York. And the day was, you know, more than 90 degrees. And it's an extreme race for any of you who have done any of these races. It takes tremendous amount of effort. He had done all the training right. You know, he was fueling during the race. But it took him much longer than it should have. I watched him at the beginning and I was like, okay, you know, he's a really great swimmer. So the swimming was like, okay, he's doing great. And you know, you watch on the track or on your phone. And then I saw the bike and I saw him starting to slow down a little bit than what I expected maybe on the bike. And then the run just, it just was something was wrong. And he finished the race, which was unbelievable. And I just remember standing there and waiting to kind of get him home. We, we actually lived on the Upper West Side, which is where the race finished, which is a blessing. We got back to our apartment and he was resting. And I remember it was the Olympics and Usain Bolt was running the 100 meter dash. And that was so important to the story because it kept me awake because I was watching this race. And then in that moment, he seized. And I obviously didn't know what was happening, didn't know what to do, called 911, the police and the ambulance and the fire department came and immediately had to rush him to a hospital on the Upper East Side. And I remember thinking like, you know, and all the questions were what had happened and, and I explained the race and that he had fueled and all these things. So what happened after that was, you know, when you're a spouse, you have to sign for someone to be intubated or for them to have uh, CAT scans and testing. And I remember that was the first time where I had been asked if I was his spouse because it was just before our first anniversary. And I also remember then the next day me thinking, you know what, it was probably dehydration, you know, and he'll just get some fluids and he'll be fine and he'll wake up. And then the head of a very big hospital on the Upper East Side in New York sat me down and I remember which direction I was looking when he said, you don't have children, do you? And I was like, no, we don't have children yet. But in my head, I was like, 
but we, we've been together a long time. You know, I, yeah. the story that's playing in your head is like, we've been together a long time and he's going to do this race and then it's going to be our first anniversary and I'm in this new job and this is this is what I want. This and my is our answer, life. This is our life. And I just was staring and I remember it was this no. And it was, you know, what, what religion are you? And you should probably talk to his parents and be prepared if last rites are necessary. And for the weeks that followed after that, you know, I, I remember sitting by his bedside and, it was it was one of the hardest moments of my entire life. Yeah. I know in the book you say that you were working for a new company at this point. Yes. And that, you know, this was not the era of bring your whole self to work as Correct. we were sort of talking about before. And you went into the president finally and, and you told him, her, I don't know, <laughs> her, that something was going on. And she just said, go. Yes. Right. A real lesson in yes. empathy and leadership. Absolutely. But what did those weeks following look like for you? I mean, you're a new bride. You're young at this point in your 20s. Yes. And like from a confidence perspective, you're all of a sudden holding the weight of everyone else's grief, I'm sure, on your shoulders. Yes. So what was that like? What was that experience like? So I was working at Chanel, mm. an unbelievable company, an unbelievable brand, obviously, beautiful. My boss and my boss's boss are incredible women. Mm. So was the president and they were both on vacation. So it was mm. also, you know, I'd only been in this job for around a year. Mm. And I also like to throw myself into things. Yeah. And I also feel tremendous pride and responsibility in my work. And I didn't want to let anybody down. Yeah. But I also knew the only person that was watching every appointment and making sure that the communication was there was me and taking care of my husband. And it was so much more paramount. Yeah. But I remember that gift of walking into her and she was like, kind of like, what are you doing? Yeah, go. go. With go. this, and I now have had those moments in my life where I've given that permission. It yeah. wasn't necessary. Like yeah. I didn't need that permission, but hearing it reinforces that, you know, sometimes you need that little bit of a push in yeah. order to, to reclaim and gain your confidence in those moments where, you know, you're exhausted yeah. um, and you're trying to weigh all of the options. Yeah. And also valued as a human being. A hundred percent. You know, which again, I think pre-COVID, this was a different conversation in yes. many ways, but that you yes. are a human and everything going on in your life will impact what you're doing. Yes. And so this all happens Tell us what happens to your husband after this. So what is miraculous and nothing short of miraculous, but due to the care he received at this hospital, he was able to walk out, mm -hmm. you know, with only my help very gingerly for someone, by the way, that was able to, you know, two and a half weeks before that run an Ironman. So yeah. that's a pretty huge shift and was still regaining all of his speech and was still having a tremendous amount of monitoring and appointments and actually wasn't supposed to be alone for several months so I had to essentially, like you are when you're a new mother, you have to coordinate care mm -hmm. with someone who's also very strong and independent and also wanted to go back to work and wanted to go back to his life. And so for me, it required an incredible community of support, mm -hmm. but also the pressure of how am I going to continue to do that? But then we found our footing mm -hmm. and work was a way for me to feel confident and capable and, and contributing and around, you know, an environment of support. And it was the same for him too. Some of his colleagues were incredibly supportive in that moment also. So we get to that point, you know, a year later, we're like, okay, we've been cleared. Everything is okay. This is a miracle. This is our gift. We're good. All right. Okay. So we're going to try to have a baby. This is the plan. This is going to be the light at the yeah, end of the tunnel. We've reset everything. We Life reset. is moving forward. And yeah. it's even more carpe diem. Like yeah. we're like, okay, this is a sign where yeah. we don't worry about everything else. This is what you really want. Yeah. 
And it took much longer than expected, which I think, you know, when you're someone who's like a very much a planner, it's like, and then I will do this yeah. and then I will do in this. The first month I'll be pregnant. Exactly. And then like, what? And I will retro time it and it will fall in this perfect window. Yeah. And it actually <laughs> during my vacation time. It, and then I can add that on. Exactly. Yes, that's the way it works. You know, and, and it's hot in New York in the summer. So, of course, you know, I want to make sure it's not in the summertime. Of course, it was in the summertime. But it took almost a year. And then after that year, we found out that we were pregnant. And, you know, you wait and you have to wait for your first appointment to be around eight weeks. And, you know, I remember I wore a dress and the story's in the book and we were walking into that appointment. And I remember, you know, they do the very uncomfortable ultrasound and waiting for like the good news and this magical moment. And I see the doctor's face drop and look at me in a very calm way. And she was so incredibly supportive through everything that would follow. You know, this is a low viability pregnancy. And I couldn't even process it. You know, I knew this. I had had friends that had suffered pregnancy loss, but not with a frequency that made it seem like this is likely after so much time. But be thoughtful and come in if anything changes. So for the next several weeks, you're hiding it. You know, I was hiding it at work. I thought I was going to have this joy that I was hiding that all I had to do was like pour out drinks in the bathroom and, you know, decide when I wanted to tell people and how we would plan this special reveal to our families. And instead, I'm trying to not carry my computer and things that are not heavy to conference rooms. And I'm avoiding going to events. And as the story says in the book, I was staring at my computer screen and there was like a sharp stabbing pain and I rushed to the bathroom and I started scrolling my phone for message board threads from years and years before it's just looking for hope. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons why with the book and anything that's around the book, I've tried to create some content. So when people are searching for things, they're not just searching for weird message board threads yes. from before, which yes. thank goodness they existed because they gave me something. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, it, we did become fortunately pregnant again, not too much longer after that. But I did hide my first viable pregnancy with my first son for way too long because I was so afraid of it happening again. Yeah. And I also had put so much pressure on myself, not just because of that particular pregnancy, but all of the time before, the if I just work harder, then I will do this. I will get a new job before I decide to have children the year that I get married because I want to set myself up for success because yeah. I'm an anticipator. I think yeah. that's something that gives me tons of confidence. And it's like, I will be able to, you know, with my husband get through this tough moment. And and so it was one of the first times where I went, oh my gosh, everything might not be possible. Yeah, there's something that is also wonderful about learning that in your life because you do realize that you can plan and plan, yes. but you just never know. And so one of the beauties of being a confident person is that you realize that no matter what is happening around you, if you've built up confidence inside, you're going to be strong enough to handle whatever it is. I know you also said in the book that there was a point in which you had had the miscarriage and you hadn't told anyone at work Mm -hmm. that you were even pregnant the first time. And you found yourself crying to a couple of colleagues Mm -hmm. at like a, a, not a holiday party of some sort. And that was kind of one of the reasons that you immediately started thinking that maybe there should be something more. Yes. And you wrote this incredible book called Carrie Strong. And there's an amazing tagline to the book, which I loved so much, where you talk about not just powering through pregnancy at work, but making pregnancy at work powerful. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? So what I realized, both for myself and having gone through that and then being on this other side, but also in all of the women that I spoke to for their stories, I asked everyone five questions. So I said, tell me a story about you when you were pregnant at work. What advice do you wish you would have had? What advice would you like to give? And the last question was, who would you like to thank? Mm -hmm. 
And one of the contributors, Catherine, has the most profound answer, which was myself. Mm. And I realized... Like Snoop Dogg, that amazing Snoop Dogg. But he's like, <laughs> exactly. I would like to thank myself. I would like to thank myself. <laughs> yeah. And there's such a boost in confidence yeah. that actually occurred. And I actually asked the questions in the research that occurs during this phase. I think it's a combination of triumph and power. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are literally creating a human while you're also doing all these other things of who you are. Yeah but it has to be in a balanced way that it doesn't feel like something heavy, but in fact, and powering through, because everyone say, what's well, something you have to get through. It's like, no, this can be a really powerful moment in your life and a point of inflection where in fact, you realize that this intersection of these really important things to you are, are both happening at the same time. Absolutely. And you also talk a little bit about this notion, and I totally understand where this comes from, because if you think about, and I can tell you this, having had three children over the course of a long job, um, one of the most amazing things is when people ask you about pregnancy, especially we're around the same age, I think, it always seemed like such a negative. I remember in the four years when I had my three children, the difference in those four years and the conversations that were taking place at work, the amount of maternity leave people were getting, even the nursing mother's room that changed in those four years. And I look back, my oldest is 10 now, where I was 11 years ago as to mm -hmm. where the companies are now and mm -hmm. what they are helping women get when they have babies to allow them to continue working. Mm -hmm. It's such a different thing. And you talk about one thing about people coming to you after you get pregnant, you tell them you're pregnant and then they start saying things like, all right, congratulations on your pregnancy. Okay, let's talk about the timeline. Like, when's your due date? And it is interesting because I remember I didn't tell anyone that I was pregnant for over a month after I could have easily told people I was pregnant. and. I did it because I didn't want people to count me out. Mm -hmm. It was a huge fear that I was going to become mm -hmm. invisible because I had seen it happen to other people. And I feel like people talked about it endlessly. Mm -hmm. But that's not what you say. So talk to me about the other side of that and how we should be thinking about that. I think in a supported environment, you know, women still are holding themselves back mm -hmm. because they still have the fear of perception or maybe very valid fear of loss, loss of self, identity, mm -hmm. all of these things. And it exists still very much too that the perception is real. We know yeah. that, you know, the motherhood penalty versus the fatherhood bonus is still contributing to the gender wage gap. Mm -hmm. So that is still there. But I would agree that the baseline has shifted. The fact that we actually, the mother's rooms are even labeled mother's rooms, Yes, you know, in places of work. The expectations are certainly there that you can talk about your children. But also, we just experienced the greatest shift in the way we worked in the past three years, where in fact, we actually saw in everyone's living room. Yeah. So there was a humanizing moment that I think we all experienced in the pandemic that accelerated also the caregiver's burden. It turned the lights on it, but I think it also gave us some more permission on something that is very normal. Like yeah. pregnancy and work is going to continue. Yeah. It's a cultural constant. Yeah. If we need children, women have to have them. Correct. So that is always going to be something. I say yes. that to people all the time. I'm like, I've had conversations with many of my friends. I have two brothers. I have friends who are single, who have babies, who don't have babies. And many times I'll be in a conversation and someone's like, well, you know, if I didn't want to have kids and I wanted to work, like, why should I have to pay someone's maternity leave or why should I have to help them? At some point, I believe this is the world that we live in. This is a community of people. And if we want to continue populating the world, there's only... 50% of the people on this planet that can do that. So what if we look at it as a, we are all the community, we are all this village, and we are trying to help that. That was definitely the approach I took as a boss. I was blessed to have an incredible team of women who really rose up when I took my maternity leaves. And I'll never forget when I came back, I told this story and to another friend of mine when she was writing her book about coming back and 
nursing and breastfeeding and having to pump, which is such, especially when I had babies before they had these things that I guess you can just stick into your bra. What an incredible invention, whoever created that. But I will never forget the first day I took my pump, I arrived, I went up to the mother's room, which was in a different building. And it takes a solid half an hour to get the whole thing set up, to pump, you know, to do what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be doing it three times. And it was an hour to do all of this every time. And so this happened the first week. And I was trying to get home to do the last feed by 5.30 and I will never forget. I sat in my office with my team, they're all women. I was like, listen, you guys are younger than I am and you have never seen anything as disgusting as a pump. The sound that it makes is the human equivalent of a cow being milked. But if I just take off my shirt and do this here, I don't have to leave. And honestly, it's gonna horrify you, but you might have children one day too and then you're gonna see it anyway. So what if we just get it out of the way and that was literally three pregnancies. I was lucky I had an office door that got stuck. It was kind of wavy glass so people couldn't see in. And if you pushed it hard enough, it would jam. And I will never forget this woman, Mariana, who I love more than life or loved more than life, would stand by that door and we would have the meetings. And if anyone came up, she'd be like, hold on just one second. I mean, there were so many hilarious moments. And I will never forget that she called me the first time she went into her meeting with her team to do the same thing. She's like, I just want to call and let you know I'm about to pump in front of my entire team. And you just realize it's not that big a deal. And you model this behavior. And then people are thinking to themselves, oh, I have to leave. I could never do it. They think, oh, well, she can do it. And it's not that big a deal. But sharing that story and what you've shared in this book and sharing your own story is what allows women to feel comfortable, that vulnerability. So tell me, what is one of your favorite stories in this book? Is there anything that stuck out to you that when you read it, you're like, God, I wish I'd seen this before? I love the story that you're sharing that gives people permission. You know, yeah. it's this allowing things to happen. And it's also, when you do that, you're giving people permission for all of the different dimensions that they're bringing to their life. Yeah. You know, there's also people that are caregivers of aging parents. There are people mm -hmm. that also have other things that they want to be doing. And by sharing this very personal intersection, you're giving them all permission too. So I often try to tell people you're giving permission to women for them to have this experience of childbirth and becoming working mothers. But also, you know, when you're doing it, you're giving permission to everybody else too that's a shared responsibility. So yeah. it can be really profound. So there's a couple of stories in the book that I would read when I would get stuck. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're writing a book, as you very much know, you kind of think that there's these moments when you're finished. Yes. <laughs> and then you're not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I had one of those moments where I thought that I was completely finished with the book. And my beloved editor, Nina, thank you so much, <laughs> sent me back three chapters that had 4,782 track changes. Oh, wow. In three chapters. Oh, wow. And my expectation had been light commas. Yeah. So maneuvering paragraphs and writing in different stories into those moments, let's just say it was not my highest moment in writing the book. You're like, this masterpiece is done, Nina. Yes. I'm not sure what you think you're I doing. Have, by I have turned this, this in. Yeah. I am an excellent yeah. student who had I signed. I had signed. Done. Signed I it. signed it. And printed it and handed it off. And in fact, it was not Yeah, done. months later. Months later. And it was so much better. <laughs> but what I would do when I had those moments of incredible self-doubt <laughs> at my computer with a hoodie on, even though it was the middle of the summer uh, while everyone else is outside, 
I would read the stories. And one of the stories for me was um, Alana Myers-Taylor. She's an Olympic athlete. She is one of the most decorated athletes of the Winter Olympics. And she actually did the monobob for the first time after she had had her first son. And her husband actually could have also qualified for the Olympics, but instead chose to be the caregiver so that she could compete and also breastfeed. That's amazing. And in her story, she also had had COVID. So she had to quarantine, figure out how to get the milk to her son. And then she wins two medals. No, stop. (laughs) And I was like, all right, if she can do that, you can edit this book. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I can get this done too. I recently had the chance to see her and she actually since then has had a second child. And when she had told me the story, she was like, oh, there's one more thing for you to know. I'm actually pregnant right now. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was actually on vacation when we had rescheduled our call together and my family was at the beach and I ran there probably a faster mile than I did in high school. And I was really (laughs) fast in high school. (laughs) I remember timing it and I think it was like a 618 mile. That's a good run. But it was downhill too. But still, I was just like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. And that I was having all these moments of self-doubt. And it's not, I mean, of course it's profound because this is this unbelievable human who's an Olympic athlete. Yeah. But there were so many of those stories and my friends and my family members are in the book that I felt tremendous responsibility and pride. It was a groundswell of support for so many women. That's what I want to create, but it was for me too. Yeah. I think often we look for what we're looking for, right? And you write to what you know, especially at that time. It's sort of that white space that you're not seeing, that book that you wanted someone to write. So I know that there are going to be so many people who are changed because they have the opportunity to read this before they have children at work or while they're getting stuck in that moment at work where they're not feeling supported. And you do this all while also in your newish role as the Chief Human Resources Officer for L'Oreal, which is not a small company. Right. Talk to me about what the everyday is like. What do you do? I mean, you're coming out of COVID. It's a recent promotion. Yes. What is this like? What is a day-to-day like for you? So I was very fortunate to join HR at L'Oreal coming from our businesses at the end of last year. And we created a role that now is on my team for the Chief People Experience Officer. So we're looking at the experience of our employees across the board from when we're recruiting them until they become alumni and we're developing them in between. So one of the most important parts of my job, and L'Oreal in the U.S. has over 11,000 employees. It's a company that's been recognized for as an employer for women and for so many individuals. We have 65% of our strategic committee is women. So it's really important to make sure that I am able to support all of those individuals, but they're also across the country. Mm -hmm. So one of my parts of my job is we have offices that are on the West Coast. We have an office in New York, but we also have manufacturing facilities, you know, across other places is to also have this purview of the organization and how to best support all of them and meet them where they are. Amazing. Well, I know that they are so lucky to have you. Thank you. Stephanie, where can we find you? Where can we support this incredible movement that you've started? So... First of all, the first page of the book is a pass it on page. And one of the most important things I can ask those of you that are listening to do is if this book helps you, of course, reviews and all those things are helpful so people can find it, but share, share the book with support because it's one thing when you tell one friend, you know, you're suffering through a loss or you're struggling through something or you're thinking about it and you want to know, but how profound if you're giving them a resource with your own support, backing it up behind it. You can find it on Carrie Strong Pregnancy on Instagram. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Stephanie Kramer. And certainly you can find the book wherever books are sold. 
So Carrie's strong and empowered approach to navigating pregnancy and work, I cannot recommend this highly enough. Stephanie, thank you so much for spending some time here in Newsstand Studios. This has been such a wonderful conversation that I know will change a lot of lives. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. I'd like to thank Joe for making sure that not only are we on time, but also that everything sounds great. And a huge thank you to Rockefeller Center for having us in this beautiful studio. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. And as you think about this conversation, What will you carry forth and what will you do to make sure that other people's voices are heard? DM me, send Stephanie a note on LinkedIn. Look forward to hearing from you. Have a wonderful week and I'll be with you again next week.